0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 46 of her story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today my guest is Emily Tsai. Emily is an oboist, freelancer, and chamber musician. In this episode, Emily and I discuss her experiences as a professional musician pre, during, and hopefully post-COVID, her woodwind quintet, Winsync, the importance of chamber music, diversity of repertoire and outreach, and breaking down the fourth wall in performance through memorization. So please make sure you are liking and you are sharing this episode with your friends. Make sure you're following all of our social media accounts. At Music Her Story Pod is our Instagram account. At music underscore her story is our Twitter account. And we also have a Facebook page. So make sure you're checking that out. Also make sure you're checking out our website as well. The links to the website are in all of our social media bios. And if you are interested in being a guest, please send your bio to musicherstorypod at gmail.com, or you can fill out our contact page on our website as well. I would love to have you on the show and listen to your story and your experiences. If you also have a topic or a guest that you would like to suggest for me to reach out to, please make sure you're also sending those ideas as well. I would love to hear from you about what you would like to see or hear from the show. I am open to all of your suggestions, so please make sure you're taking all those things into account, and I will see you next Monday.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Emily Tsai, and I'm currently the oboist in Winsink, which is a wind quintet. And we tour, usually, not now, (laughs) but we usually tour around 100-plus days a season around the country and sometimes internationally as well. Um, I also teach at St. Mary's College in St. Mary's City, Maryland. And um, I also play in several of the orchestras in the area, so kind of a freelancer in the Washington, D.C area
0: busy woman love it yeah exactly what got you started in music in the first place
1: well you know when I was young I started out on the violin actually um so my parents you know being Asian (laughs) my parents (laughs) were very like you have to play an instrument and it can only be either piano or violin and my sister my older sister played piano so I was left with violin um, and I played violin all the way. I still play violin, actually, and I still teach violin. Um, but I picked up oboe in my middle school band program, like a lot of wind players do. Um, and my school is very small, so we didn't have an orchestra, so I couldn't play violin. And they didn't have any oboe players in the entire school. So I didn't know what an oboe was, but my band teacher is like, we kind of need this and you can make a sound, so you should play it. And <laughs> I feel like I got a little tricked into playing the oboe because... I didn't know that the oboe is considered like one of the more difficult instruments to play. Mm -hmm. And also that you have to make your own reeds, which is a whole deal. (laughs) So that's how I got started in music um, at a young age. And then later on, when I was in middle school, I actually had kind of an accident where I ended up losing part of my vision for Mm -hmm. um, almost a year. And I had really bad migraine headaches um, and such. So I actually couldn't play oboe for all of that time, but I kept playing violin and mm-hmm. I couldn't see the music. And my violin teacher was really great. And she actually taught me the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto by ear. Like I couldn't see the music. Wow. So I but that actually really sparked, um, I think, the musicality in me. Like, cause I couldn't see the notes. I could just feel it and listen to it. Yeah. And that just like, gave me a whole different perspective on music. And that's kind of when I knew I wanted to do music in college and, and beyond. And um, I did get my vision back, luckily, thank you, thank God. But um, I then picked, started oboe again. I wanted to double major in both violin and oboe. Um, but again, my Asian parents were like, oh, you need to have a backup degree <laughs> besides music. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I, I agreed to do a dual degree in... Um, biology and music when I went to college and so therefore I couldn't really do both instruments mm-hmm. um, and I ended up choosing oboe because I felt like, like it was really unique and it made me kind of stand out there's a lot of violinists out there great violinists but um you know oboe is a little rarer instrument so that's how I kind of started in my uh career uh, as being an oboe player
0: <laughs> oh wow what a what a journey okay I want I want to dive back into a couple things first of all I want to talk a little bit about culture and how it plays into young children and what instruments they choose and if they're involved in music and things like that. And you had mentioned that your parents because they're Asian wanted you to play an instrument and things like that. So is that and I'm and I'm not Asian myself. I am mainly Caucasian, so I'm <laughs> I'm not going to assume anything for sure. There's that saying that
1: the tiger parents, tiger mom, you know, always pushing the Asian kids to like really excel and to do all the, you know, brainy activities that they can.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So is it just because your parents had a really strong appreciation for the arts or was it more just like a cultural thing?
1: I think it was a little bit of both um, because my mom actually plays piano um, and my dad um, played horn, French horn in the Taiwan army band uh, because you know, back then um, all Taiwanese men had to be in the military for, I think, two years. Oh, okay. So instead of being in like the military military, he was like, oh, maybe I could just be in the band. And so he played in the band for his um, time in the military there. And so they've always had that really big appreciation for classical music and the arts. Um, But also I think that that culture is like, you know, you've gotta do, Um, I think uh, Asians are specifically um, drawn to classical music just because of the discipline aspect of it. You know, like you have to, it it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of dedication. It's not always fun, but if you stick with it and you work hard, it's a great payoff. And classical music does help um, kids or even adults just um, in a lot of other skills like organization, like, you know, dedication and um, just really managing your time and um, focus. So Mm -hmm. I think that's why a lot of, at least in my experience, a lot of Asian parents kind of want that for their kid. Um, They don't necessarily want them to be a musician (laughs) when they, you know, as a career, because, you know, there's that saying, well, musicians don't make money, you know, that kind of thing. But they do want that foundation of like discipline and like um, hardworking characteristics, instilled at a young age. And so I think that's like a cultural thing for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and playing, you know, both violin and oboe, and you were talking about how you had your, your vision impairment issue and what a wonderful teacher to teach you an entire violin concerto by ear.
1: Yes. And she, yeah, she was wonderful. And, um, actually she was also very, um, instrumental in helping me recover because her father was a doctor and a retired doctor and so he kind of referred me to some of his specialist friends
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that kind of helped me get my um eyesight back so
0: wow oh, yeah i a her her lot great <laughs> that's so crazy and so do you think that because you were kind of almost forced to learn music early and and through memory that that kind of changed how you perceive and how you learn music you know after your vision came back
1: oh for sure i um definitely started viewing music as um like a language you know like it made sense it wasn't just this note then this note you know like cuz before i could play you know the rhythms and the notes and everything but it wasn't it wasn't very organic it wasn't very from the heart <laughs> and so afterwards i kind of really started to learn music by year and even if i could see the music i would sing the melodies in my head and then if i could sing it i could play it mm-hmm. um kind of develops that skill and that is when music really comes alive is whenever it just comes naturally and not so like studied you know um so yeah so that's i i feel like it really helped me view it in a totally different light and that mm-hmm. even though it was a horrible time to go through you know had Many headaches, and you know, for my schoolwork, you know, I had to have my homework and my tests read to me. Yeah. And, you know, it was a whole thing, but the outcome was like really life changing because I just kind of learned how to be a musician by not being able to see the music. So,
0: yeah, I feel like in times of adversity as well, like certain people come through that, you know, even for the better. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think
1: that, um. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of, like I said, classical music is super character building, I think. And so a lot of people, um, whenever they're faced with adversity, they a lot of people step up to the plate and some people can't, you know. But I think with the classical music background, like, if something doesn't work, you just keep practicing, you keep trying. Yeah. And if you have that mindset, you know, I think that actually helped me be like, okay, you know. I'm going to just keep going. I can still learn. I can still do everything. It might be more difficult, but it's still going to be possible. And when I went to, you know, see a bunch of doctors around the country, they said that, you know, this is a very unique thing, but they've not, it's not something they haven't seen before. And usually, eventually, it does come back on its own, like the vision comes back. So that also kind of gave me a little hope to um, reward as well.
0: Yeah that's amazing. Um and then you had also mentioned you talked about how you attended Eastman for your bachelor's and you also were uh, pursuing ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Rochester, which I was, I saw that in your bio and I just started, I started chuckling a little bit because I, I have, I'm a graduate student at Eastman as well. So I, I know of people that, you know, are like neuroscience majors at University of Rochester. And then they're also like magically double majoring in the music in Eastman. And I'm like, how in the heck are you doing all of those things at the same time? So can you talk a little bit about your undergraduate experience, you know, not only being a music student and excelling on your instrument and trying to keep up with music school, but also pursuing ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Rochester, because that is not an easy degree either.
1: (laughs) Yeah, actually, um, initially, my parents wanted me to be pre-med, you know, they wanted me to be a doctor. (laughs) But I always had a love for nature um, and learning how, like, biologically the world works. Um, when I was in high school, I took all the extra biology classes that I could, like marine biology and, you know, all that, all that good stuff, um, because I was just so interested in how animals in particular work, but also just, like, how nature works. Um, so... That's why I didn't really do the pre-med route that my parents (laughs) wanted me to. But going to Eastman, um, it was quite the balancing act because, you know, know, you're an Eastman grad. You know that it's quite a difficult curriculum. There's a lot expected out of you. And when I was auditioning for schools, there are several other places that I was, you know, wanting to do a dual. I mentioned when I took a lesson with the professor that I wanted to do a dual degree and there was one um who just flat out told me is like well if you're falling behind in your musical studies then that's not for you to decide like i wouldn't allow you to do a dual degree you'd have to spend more time on music yeah. and that that kind of really you know turned me off from that school in particular because when i went to eastman my professor richard kilmer was so encouraging of everything that i was doing like because I, like I said, I kept actually playing violin when I was in college. Um, I played on a lot of my friend's recitals, actually, <laughs> um, on violin. But then also he was really encouraging me to do pursue my other interests because I think he had this philosophy of if you are a well-rounded person and you're not just that person who's stuck in a practice room and only knows your instrument, only knows music, You know, if you're a well-rounded person, you have a lot more to offer, you have a lot more to say, and you can relate more to the general public, which is, you know, who is the people that we're trying to reach with our music in the first place. So he wasn't easy on me, for sure. He was, he had very high expectations. Um, And when I was falling behind at any point, um, he would call me out on it. Um, So it was a huge uh, study in time management, (laughs) basically. And so I've actually given a few um, like studio classes um, when I was in grad school to the undergraduates um, about how to practice efficiently, how to manage your time, you know, the things that you can do because if you don't have like three or four hours a day to practice, you can still have very focused practicing and like get a lot out of it. And another thing that my teacher at Eastman said was, you know, if you're practicing for three hours or four, 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 five hours or whatever, there might be something wrong because if you're doing it for that long, you know, you shouldn't need to do it for that long if you're doing really efficient, focused practicing. And I really took that to heart um, because there were days I could literally, I mean, there were times I couldn't practice for like an entire week. The only time I was playing was in rehearsals. And so um, in the rehearsals, I would really focus in on like the fundamentals um, of playing, like creating the sound, intonation, that kind of stuff. The things that you would do, like playing scales, because I just didn't have time um an undergrad. And that's not for everybody. You know, some people actually do need the woodshedding period. Um, a lot of people, I would say most people, would need that woodshedding period in their undergraduate degree. But I think coming, again, from this Asian background of like, okay, you got to just make it work. You got to be the best, but you got to do a lot of stuff. <laughs> And so I kind of just really pushed myself um, and was able to kind of navigate both worlds um, fairly well. There were a few incidences, but, you know, I came out OK.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. And one point that you brought up when you were um, talking about that resonated with me was this idea of efficient practice. And your teacher telling you if you have to spend four or five hours <laughs> a day in a practice room, you're probably doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> is so is so true. I think when we are young students and, you know, we don't know any better, like let's say high school students who may not have had a teacher that talked to them about playing efficient practice. We think the more we practice, the better the outcome. And I think that sometimes, you know, quality over quantity, right? I think that, you know, young people need mentors to guide them through what is efficient practice because I don't think that there are people there that are saying, hey, this is how you're going to officially practice now. You don't need to put half your day into this um, and keep slamming and doing the same thing over and over and over again. Um, my my teacher in my undergrad used to, you know, talk about the definition of insanity, right? You do the same thing over and over and over again and expect the same results. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's it's kind of like that sort of mentality when we talk about um, practicing for longer, but not efficiently.
1: Right. Um, yeah, I would totally agree with that. You know, the definition of insanity. Um, I actually talk about that a lot with my students that I teach now. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I think the old school method of teaching is like, I assign you this, you work it out, and you bring it to me in the next lesson. You know, yeah. like, you work it out on your own. Um, but yeah, a lot of kids, they just, um, you know, they practice by just playing through the piece, top to bottom, you know, especially when you're younger. Mm -hmm. Um, and that doesn't really do anything (laughs) you know um so I have this thing that I say to my younger students my private students just pinpoint practicing you know Mm
0: -hmm. say you
1: only have 15-20 minutes to do a little practice session don't just read down the piece mark the parts in your in your music that are giving you the most trouble and just go for that and do really good work on that little section Mm -hmm. um for my older students it's more like okay how are you going to portion your time? You need the most important thing for a budding you know, musician in undergrad, I think, is really doing your scales and long tones. Mm-hmm. Um, as boring as that sounds, there's so much that you can gain um, by that. So when I was an undergrad, if I didn't have time to really practice practice, I would at least try to do long tones and um, some scales and arpeggios.
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: Cause that's the, that's your foundation. So it's really about, you know, creating an environment for yourself that you're not distracted, you know, so get putting the phone away, you know, all that. Good <laughs> stuff. But then also knowing what's important, not just, okay, I'm just going to play my solo and you know, over and over again, it'll get better. That's not how it works. So, so yeah, I think teaching kids how to practice or how to um, go about doing a task instead of just saying, here's the goal. Whatever way you do it, just meet it, you know, Uh, that sometimes can leave um, students kind of puzzled as to how to get there. I remember back in undergrad, there was a few uh, classmates of mine who are like bragging like, oh, I practiced, you know, six hours or today. And I'm like, great, I practiced for half an hour (laughs) because I didn't have time. Um, And it's like, that's great if it's efficient practicing. But then you also have to think about like, okay, if you're practicing that long, you could injure yourself. Yep, it's like, not really healthy to do that for that long um because playing a musical instrument is a very physical activity so gotta, gotta watch out, gotta pace yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and right. you brought up the, the good point of <laughs> starting from the beginning over and over again and running down the piece. I actually just had a conversation with my high school students about that. Um, <laughs> he was trying to work on an etude for his private teacher and he was in one of the practice rooms, like adjacent to our band room. And I was just sitting in my office, um, like writing emails. Cause you know, I get like 800 bajillion emails a day now cause COVID and I hear him, He'd start at the beginning of the etude, and he'd mess up about, I don't know, probably like 30, 40 measures And You get about halfway through, and he'd mess it up. Then he'd start over at the beginning again. Then he'd start over <laughs> at the beginning again. And I'm like, Donovan, what's <laughs> going on there, buddy? He's like, oh, I don't know, Miss Reed. I'm just getting really frustrated. I get all the way through, halfway through the piece, and I mess up. He's like, then I feel like I have to start over again. And I'm like, dude, it's not a video game level. <laughs> like, that's what I kind of equate it with. I think kids like are like, you know, it's they kind of have that mentality of they got to approach it again from the very beginning like if you play a video game you die you got to start over at the beginning of the level so they start doing it again and i'm like dude you know the beginning of this piece i was like if i flipped your music over right now you could probably play it memorized you sound fine there you need to tackle the spot that you keep messing up don't start at the beginning again i was like not only that but he's a trumpet player i'm like you are going to run out of juice um, and you're not going to be practicing efficiently if you just keep starting at the beginning over and over again. You're never going to get this spot unless you tackle it. So that when you were talking about the pinpoint practicing, I was kind of chuckling to myself because I just had that conversation with one of my students the other day. So, yeah. It, 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 <laughs> so yeah,
1: that. especially for brass players, man, like you could really injure yourself by yep. just practicing like that. It's, you know, um, since I play in a quintet, you know, our horn player. I guess I know maybe a little bit more about brass playing than maybe some other woodwind players, but man, you guys have to really stay in shape and be careful. Don't just blow your lips out because then you can have some dire consequences. Um, I had a friend who had Bell's palsy,
0: Mm. um,
1: one player, and it was just, oh man, because you can do that to yourself if you aren't careful in your practice and you're just playing too much.
0: Yeah. 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 I love this tangent we're going on of efficient practices. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pivot a little bit though. So you went to University of Maryland for your master's and you had also um, played in a graduate quintet called Siren. So can you talk a little bit about your graduate experience and your time playing in that quintet?
1: Oh, sure. So when I was a senior at Eastman or when I graduated, uh, my teacher nominated me to get the chamber music award for my class, and I got it. And so that really kind of solidified my interest in chamber music, um, in particular, because I all throughout undergrad, I just, you know, wanted to collaborate. I, I was in multiple chamber groups every year. And I, and for my senior recital, because I had played in so many of my friends recitals, I was like, Hey, you owe me you play in my recital now. So I actually played like, an oboe concerto with a full orchestra, um, mm-hmm. for my senior recito. And, um, so that aspect of collaboration, you know, with your peers really appealed to me. So Maryland had this wind quintet fellowship and it was actually the very first year that they've had it. Um, they've had a string quartet fellowship for a while, a few years, I think, but now they're, they were expanding to the wind quintet. And I was like, Oh man, that's, perfect for me, because I want to do chamber music. This is intensive chamber music, it sounds like. Um, and so I applied, and um, luckily I got it. Now, and because it was kind of a new program, there were a lot of things that were like, well, you know, let's figure out how to do this. Like, the professors and us, the five of us together,
0: were,
1: were like figuring out how to do it. Yeah, And the five of us in the group, Um, we were in a preformed group there were some preformed groups that auditioned um but they decided to do take five players from you know individually Mm -hmm. Um, i did know the horn player though he went to eastman as well so at least i knew one person oh (laughs) it's really great to have like a friendly face (laughs) yeah so the other those the others i didn't know but um we were just required to do, you know, this many hours of practice a week and have this many coachings a week and perform this many times a semester. And that was like our uh, outline for our fellowship, um, while also participating in the large ensembles, um, and doing everything else that, you know, all the other grad students were doing. So it was pretty intensive. And, um, it was the first time that it wasn't like, okay, the school I mean, the school did organize it, I suppose, because it is the school fellowship. But we had to really take control and be like, okay, what are we playing? Let's make creative programming decisions. Let's. Um, we had to reach out to the faculty that we were going to get coached from. You know, it wasn't just like you're assigned this. So yeah. that kind of actually led me to start looking at the management, the business side of being a chamber group. Um, without even knowing it, like I just kind of fell into that role where I started, I was the one who reached out to the professors. I was the one who was kind of organizing our rehearsals. Um, and, um, we all chipped in for the programming, but, um, you know, our first big collaboration was my, um, project. We did Mm -hmm. a collaboration with a percussionist. Um, and it was really fun, but you know, that kind of looking at it from the entrepreneurial side or looking at it from the business side, it was something that I hadn't really done before. And that along with playing a bunch of repertoire was um, a lot of what I really learned from my time at Maryland. And I think that's something that a lot of musicians don't get in their um, in their education. Um, they have like the music, you know, their, you know, the technical aspects of playing, the musicality, the music history, all that. But they don't have like the bare bones, like, Logistical information that they need to say start their own career, not necessarily in an orchestra. So, kind of, it was kind of a good thing. It was a good and bad thing that it was, we were the first, we were like the guinea pigs, um, because that led me to kind of discover that side of the music business. But at the same time, it was also a little bit chaotic, you know, as you can imagine, um, being the first group. And um that program is still going on. They still have Win Quintet Fellowships. And um I've uh I've kept in touch, of course, with my old professor, Mark Hill, and he's um has not he's like, Wow, you know, this program has really grown and you guys have really like kind of helped us to shape it, you know, for the future quintets. So chaotic but also very um, you know, get to work, you know, gotta learn things on the job, that kind of thing. So
0: yeah, I think you brought up a really good point about learning the business and the the managing side of having an ensemble like that because like you said, I think a lot of focus is, you know, on performing, learning repertoire and all those things, but it really prepares you for the professional world of, hey, now you're a musician and you have to make money doing this. <laughs> uh-huh. So, I think that's such a useful skill to have in the safety of being a graduate school student who maybe doesn't have to completely worry about this being their 100% career at this moment, but they get that time to prepare for you know the real world, quote unquote, of having to have those skills um, to promote themselves, to network, to get gigs, to you know figure out how you're going to tour, how you're going to book performances, things like that. That stuff is so helpful to know. And I'm really glad that you had that experience. I think it is unique in a way.
1: Yeah, I- that's just so valuable. And given the career that I'm in right now, it just made a lot of sense um, to kind of get those skills when you're young. I I mean, in hindsight, of course. Um, But yeah, I I do wish that a lot of schools had more of those kinds of classes or something available for music students. Um, And actually, that's one of the Things that WinSync does is that we go into a lot of universities and colleges and high schools um, across the country, and we do entrepreneurial workshops. Like we um, tell them how WinSync started. We tell them our experiences, and WinSync is a nonprofit as well. So we talk about how to run a nonprofit, how all these things that no musician student would ever like really learn um, in a classroom necessarily. There are some schools that have those kinds of classes, which is great. I think I wish that more music schools would have that. Um, but we've, we've done a lot of entrepreneurial workshops um, with universities and those students are always really eager, like, cause they know the orchestras and of across the country, you know, even before the pandemic, unfortunately, a lot of them were struggling. Yeah. Um, so the whole music, the whole classical music industry really needs to kind of revamp, really needs to do something innovative and relatable to the current, um, generation. Um, and so a lot of young music students are worried, okay, you know, is there going to be an orchestra for me to play in when I'm out of school? Mm-hmm. Um, and if not, what am I going to do with this degree? <laughs> yeah. so creating your own path in music can be very daunting, very, you know, intimidating. But, um, I think having these tools, Learning about these tools um, from other people who have done it, other chamber groups, or other whoever has created a path for themselves in music is really, really
0: helpful. So, yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And we talk about this a lot on the show of how music schools need to create more of a holistic experience, no matter what major you are, um, because I feel like a lot of the things that we're talking about, the skills that you need to not only be comfortable as a professional musician in the field, but also to be successful are skills that really are just focused on people who major in like arts management and those sorts of majors when it would be nice to um, have, you know, performance majors and others, you know, take classes on entrepreneurship and music and really have that be also a focus as well, not just, you know, playing your instrument really well, which is obviously should be the main focus. Yes. But, there should be more training in that side instead of just like, here, you got your sheet of paper, now go figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I- Cause we're really just leaving people to like go fend for themselves. Bye-bye. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Um, that's exactly kind of what we were talking about before with like how a young student, like high school, junior high, how do they practice? You're just like, here you go, here's your music, go practice, and they have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. And so it's kind of the same thing at the college level. Like I know Eastman has, um, you know, classes and arts leadership programs and stuff, but it's not like a requirement and it's not like, there's not a lot of emphasis on it for most, um, performance majors because you're right. You know, you go to Eastman to study with your professor to get better at your instrument. That's like the main objective, Mm -hmm. but if it's not on your radar, you know, most most performance majors are like oh there was that class oh you know they had no idea <laughs> yeah so, and actually i was one of those i didn't know that i i mean i knew about him but i wasn't it wasn't on my radar so mm-hmm. much it wasn't so pressing um and important to me especially because i was you know doing the dual degree but i think that if schools kind of really were like this is something you must know or yeah. even make it part of the core curriculum mm-hmm. um that would be fantastic because then I think young musicians wouldn't have the rug pulled out from under them when they graduate and be like, "Uh Oh, you know, what am I doing?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) that that kind of relates to that equity issue, right. Of there are students that can afford to take those extra credits and pay for those extra things to do all that stuff. But it's a completely different story to make it part of the curriculum Mm -hmm. so that it can be in that credit load. So kids that are there on scholarship or have financial aid will still make that affordable and be part of their education. I think there's so many issues with equity um, among students and equity in a financial sense as well. Mm -hmm. um, For for especially music school, um, having to take on extra credits in order to feel like, okay, now I can kind of be more confident in going into the professional world. And I think also... Anyone who teaches a studio of musicians at a university or college or conservatory or wherever your setting is, should be emphasizing their students that want to go on to be freelancing musicians and professional musicians when when they graduate to take those classes as well. I think that needs to be a little bit of a a kick in the butt with the studio teachers too, because your students really look up to you and they Mm -hmm. see you as that mentor and they see you as that guide. And I mean, that's, that's, there's a lot of positives to that in, in music school as well. So that relationship, if that person's saying, you know what? Yeah, I could have used those skills when I was a student you should take that class. If there's that push there too, not just from the school administration, but also from the the teachers themselves to be like, hey, yeah, you know what? I could have used that class. Um, I had to figure it out on my own after I graduated. You should probably take that. Um, So if there's that, and then also just including that as part of the curriculum, even if it was like, you have to take so many credits of electives and that's an elective option. And then you're like pushing them towards that. Like, yeah, you should take that elective. Even if it's something like that. I think that would be so much more beneficial to all the students. Yeah, I absolutely agree. (laughs) Um, Luckily, I am
1: from my experience touring um, with Winsink and doing a lot of university residencies. More and more professors are really um, thinking about these kinds of things and are kind of advocating. I mean, that's kind of one of the reasons why they're bringing um, Winsink in, in the first place is because they want these kids to be exposed to a real life full time performing, you know, chamber ensemble. And how could they get there? So um, it is encouraging that a lot of professors are having these things in mind now, um, mm-hmm. whereas before I think it was more like the OK, I'm just going to teach you the oboe, you know. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, yeah, I think that's so great um, that we are kind of moving towards that sort of eclectic music experience. Like we want you to survive, but we also want you to thrive because there's no reason why everybody needs to be a struggling artist in this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always that assumption, right? That we're always struggling, whether or not okay. we are or not. <laughs> I mean, some of us may be struggling now because COVID, but right. <laughs> normal year, it is perfectly possible for you to have a career in music. So let's talk about your career in music. So okay. you had mentioned your Wind sync Woodwind court uh, quintet. Oh my gosh, I almost said quartet. Whoops. <laughs> Don't want to get rid of the horn player. So can you talk a little bit about your quintet, maybe some of the projects that you have worked on uh, commissioning new music and that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Winsync is
1: one of, uh, we have, a, you know, our mission statement. And part of that mission statement is to, you know, expand the Win Quintet repertoire. And we do that a lot by either commissioning pieces, new pieces, or by arranging music. And we do um, all of our, well, we don't, we sometimes play other people's arrangements, but we do uh, most of our arrangements we do in-house. So that's a whole other thing. If you, if you'd like to dive into that, we can dive into that arranging music. But for the commissions, it's been very exciting. We've um, done quite a few in the past uh, couple years. We even had one recently that was premiered last year. So it was, you know, a pandemic commission um, and the composer wrote it in with the thought in mind that we were going to do this as a multi-track recording. So it was tough for the composer, I think, to like balance out the creativity and everything, but knowing that it's going to have to be recorded separately. <laughs> so um, so that was really exciting. And we've um, had a lot of really big successes with our commissions. Um, one in particular had a lot of success is, um, by Mark Melitz. And, and he, we commissioned him to write a piece for the anniversary of the moon landing. And so one of the big projects that Winsink is trying to do with that piece in particular is kind of bridge the STEM to STEAM gap here, like bringing in some, some of the sciences and some of the history, um, in the education system and pairing that with the arts um so teaching kids about the moon landing by playing this piece and just like talking to them about it maybe getting them interested and inspired by music about you know space travel is really cool it's one of the big projects that we love to do integrating music with other disciplines um so that was a huge um commission that we did and it's been very well received um we've played it you know hundreds of times by now (laughs) Um, and then um, the um, the commission I was talking about that was that premiered last year that was um, by um, Akshaya Avril Tucker, and she's wonderful and she's a, a dancer as well, a composer and a cellist, so she's you know the Renaissance lady. Um, but she wrote us this wonderful piece called "Hold Sacred," and that was the one we did multi track recording, and we also did um, video, and she danced along with. Um, In the video. And um, it was just really, really awesome to see the final result. And she said that she named this piece Hold Sacred because, you know, especially during this time, we as a society kind of need to think back what are the things that we hold sacred? And maybe we can make them more tangible to ourselves, like actually holding these things and holding them close and, you know, and kind of using the music and using this kind of thought process to, even though we're all separate and we all had to record separately, you can still bring something together and make it beautiful and make it unifying. So that was one thing that was really awesome to do during this pandemic year Mm -hmm. is that project. Um, Yeah. And then um, we have uh, more commissions on the horizon. Um, I'm not going to, necessarily say them yet because they haven't necessarily been confirmed confirmed but um, (laughs) we do want to um we do we are looking at composers who are you know especially women composers especially composers of color like we really want to kind of showcase them because they don't have a lot of the chances i think a lot of you know white men composers do Mm
0: -hmm. in getting
1: their music out there um one i i will say is um that we are commissioning um uh, uh I think this one's coming soon is um a guy in Houston. Well Winsink is based in Houston, so we, we're commissioning this composer in Houston who's an Asian composer. So that's very exciting for me. <laughs> so we're we're trying to really showcase the as diverse a set of composers as we can, especially given that the group, um, you know, is pretty diverse in and of ourselves like, um, I'm there. And also our clarinetist, um, he's Puerto Rican. And so, um, we just have a lot of fun. And when we go on tour, sometimes we actually do get the comment, like, wow, you guys are so diverse, (laughs) Uh, especially when we're like playing in a smaller, you know, city or something like that. But we, we like it. We, we own it, you know? Um, it's good to like show people across the country, like, Hey, you know, it's not, we're not homogenous. We are all different and it's wonderful and we can still play t- music together and bring everyone together. It's, it's pretty fun to do it that yeah, way. It's
0: so. not just old white men that play classical music. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. I love all of what you're doing and all of your work um, with, you know, bringing this piece of innovation in here and, Creating new music and sh- sharing it with others, and you were mentioning, you know, during this time of COVID, even putting together projects virtually where you're recording separately, and how it's still it's better than nothing, right? I'm so glad that we are living in a time where we do have this technology because I could not imagine like the last pandemic, the Spanish flu issue that happened in like what was it, 1918? What did musicians do then? I have no idea. Probably didn't. Yeah, do I don't music know. actually, that'd be interesting to to look up. Um... Yeah, I I could not yeah, imagine that because you know even me as an educator, I'm trying to figure out ways for my kids to still have a concert. So yeah. I'm either I'm I'm having them record videos now. So that's our backup plan. If we can't do a live stream concert, <laughs> I'm going to put together a virtual concert, and mm-hmm. it's a, a a beast of a project to do with a band with uh you know eighteen oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh... <laughs> and you're relying on high schoolers <laughs> to play in time and <laughs> <laughs> I um, actually one of the things during the
1: pandemic that I've kind of picked up is that um, I have kind of become this very novice, self taught, you know, sound and video editor. And mm-hmm. I've actually put together um, a few of our multi track videos for Winsync. Um awesome. so one of them of which was a, a commission is called Rocky hook Rakül Havasu, I'm I'm horrible at pronouncing it, but it's a Turkish um, piece by a cool. Turkish composer, and it's a it's like a drinking song, so it's really fun. Um, but <laughs> I I was kind of the one that headed up that project. I kind of I made the click track, the drone, you know, like mm-hmm. and try to figure out how to do the tempo changes, you know, from the five of us, and then that kind of launched me into doing some of my own projects where on my own during the pandemic I did a multi-track of myself playing an arrangement of, that I made <laughs> of the first movement of Debussy's La Mer for Obo Choir. And oh, cool. um, yeah, and so that's uh, that's on my YouTube <laughs> at Oboe Friend. And um, it was really cool because I got to experiment with sound. I got to experiment with video editing. And then one of the orchestras I played with, the Garden State Philharmonic, I'm the principal oboist there, you know, they actually um, needed help with putting together a July 4th concert, um, virtually. And so I was like, Hey, I have a little bit of experience from doing like a little wincing things and little, my own project. Um, I, maybe I could help out. And so then I actually kind of started to become like the musician, like head of like the recording project, like telling people how to record, you know, making the click tracks, putting it kind of all together. Initially, we and then they had like a professional sound person put it, the rest of it together. But um, now I've like kind of become the my official title now is director of video projects with the Garden State Philharmonic. Even though I'm just like I'm just like messing around, like trying to figure things out as I go myself. So these kinds of skills, especially nowadays, you're talking about technology. Like these are also things that young students at music schools could really benefit from. You mm-hmm. know learning about these things um and knowing that it's not just you have to be in a room with other people to make music like you can do your own personal projects it's what pop artists have been doing for a long time and classical musicians need to kind of maybe take a, a lesson from them um given that pop music is a lot easier to record you know because of the you know the beats and like the ten- there's no tempo changes usually yeah that kind of But um, we can start learning to use this to our advantage and um, especially now. So it's been a fun kind of learning a
0: totally new skill that I've never dabbled in before the pandemic hit. So that's that's so great. Yeah, I I can relate to that a lot. I mean, I started this podcast in I started releasing episodes of June of last year. Um, I started, you know, planning out what I was going to do with it of March of last year, like right when, you know. Should hit the fan with <laughs> the pandemic. But I never, you know, thought I would do a podcast. I didn't know how to do any of it. I was trying to Google things and figure it out on my own. I tried to figure <laughs> out what type of microphone to buy and what software to use and where to host all my tracks and all that stuff. So I, I completely understand that and having to just kind of figure it out. <laughs> I think it's yeah. just a time of figuring it out. But I think that's also really great because I think if it weren't for that, I don't think I. I think I would have pursued this idea in some form but I don't know if I would have done a podcast. I don't know. I don't know what I would have done. But I don't think this would have existed without, you know, having that time of, you know, being at home and not being able to do anything and like really just being alone with my thoughts really <laughs> um to develop this. So I do I do agree with you in that um it it has has sparked some New interest and some new um, sources of creativity. But speaking of COVID, I'd like to ask: as you know, a person that's involved in chamber music and is a professional musician and a freelancer and all these things that we've been talking about, where do you think? And this this doesn't mean that you are the expert of of all things and you know the exact truth of what's going to happen. <laughs> but where do you think, in your opinion, and where you are in your career, where do you think the trajectory of classical music is going to go? you know, post-pandemic, when we can finally return back to normal, hopefully? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. That's a
1: huge question. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, we, um, I've been asked that before in some, you know, university virtual, you know, workshops and stuff like that. It's tough to say, but I do feel confident that chamber music is going to lead the way, you know, Mm. Um, because of the pandemic, you know, small group gatherings and stuff like that. It's going to it would be really cool because it kind of harkens back to where chamber music came from in the first place. Yeah. Playing music in somebody's house, you know, for a small group of people. Cause chamber, I mean, chamber music is really just, it's meant for a room, not like a huge hall necessarily um, like an orchestra. So I think these like kind of with the mindset of small gatherings um, and being, you know, safe is, chamber music can really, you know, step in to help the classical music industry bounce back after this. And I think it's already happening. A lot of orchestras and stuff, they're doing chamber concerts. um, And a lot of chamber groups, a lot of people, um, I think I heard that like on Spotify or something, a lot of people started like looking up chamber music um, to listen to because that's kind of the trend. Um, Well, the trend is, being forced right now by this pandemic, but I think people are really getting turned on toward chamber music. And once that, you know, kind of revitalizes, hopefully the classical music industry after this pandemic is over, um, I think then the orchestras, I'm you know hoping beyond hope, they, they will come back too. Now, I think chamber music is very primed for this position, not only because of the small groups, but also because it's so personal when you play chamber music, you know, there's only, you know, for me, it's five people on the stage. So the audience is really look at you and they really like, they think they, they get to know you because you're playing to them and they're specifically looking at you. So one thing that Winston does back before pandemic is that we would go out and mingle with the audiences after every show. We want to meet the community and they are just wonder, like, that's my favorite part about touring. Um, it's just like meeting people across the country and, um, seeing them how much they love music and sharing a conversation, you know, that kind of thing. Chamber music is very personal and I think it brings audiences into that kind of like human connection that we've all been craving while we've had to, you know, quarantine. So um, I think there's hope. I think there's a lot of hope. And I think that chamber music can be really, really good to bring classical music back onto the radars of people. Maybe they wouldn't have otherwise reached before. So yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's such an excellent point. And and something that I haven't really thought of, like in the way that you described, I think I think that some orchestras are starting to bring back like even like symphony orchestras, they're like, okay, well, we can't fit everybody on the stage. But we could do this like small piece for like chamber strings or something. And that's what they're programming right now. Or they're having members of the orchestra form a woodwind or things like that. And I think that you brought up the good point of it's kind of bringing back that historical time and that place of what chamber music was founded on and what it was about. And yeah. I think that's such a, such a positive thing because I think that, while chamber music is alive and well, I think um, his, you know, in current history, it's kind of gotten lost under like the massive, huge, powerful sound of the <laughs> symphony orchestra. And that's what everybody goes to see, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But I think there's an amazing benefit to people experiencing chamber music. And then that's, and that's their option. For sure. I think it has a lot of educational benefits for people to really appreciate that method of of performing so yeah I, I do agree with you I think that that's an amazing positive that could come out of this situation for sure and I never really thought of it in that light but yeah you brought us some really good points that's yeah yeah and actually,
1: yes. <laughs> when you talk to, I'm just kind of spitballing here but like in a culture now where everything is so like catered uniquely to you as an individual mm-hmm. you know chamber music is more of a unique experience i think in yeah. an orchestra i mean orchestras I, I love orchestras don't get me wrong mm-hmm. but you know they play pieces and they play the same oftentimes the same pieces over and over and over again right because that's what draws the crowds unfortunately they're kind of tied with the finance oh, and stuff.
0: beethoven for the 35th hundredth time yes right and i love
1: beethoven but you know <laughs> so chamber music can really be like that unique experience that people especially young people are craving like they want to they don't want to be part of the masses you know they want something uniquely catered to them um which is the trend now and so
0: that we we talk about like classical music and how you know playing an instrument it's about human connection and all these things but if we're, if we're going down to brass tacks here, yes, there is some communication that happens between sections in a symphony orchestra, but the main relationship that's happening when you're performing in an orchestra is you're looking at the conductor, and it's conductor, mm-hmm. ensemble, conductor, ensemble. The real communication, the real in-depth eye contact, and moving together happens in chamber music, and mm-hmm. I think You know, I obviously know that because I've played chamber music. You obviously know that you're a chamber music musician, but the general public that isn't necessarily classical musicians doesn't quite realize that until they go to a chamber music concert. So I think that that idea of human connection and it not being about the individual, like you said, really comes forth in chamber music and people can see that. And I think that's an amazing benefit of people going to these chamber music concerts. Right. Um, and actually, just just brought, reminded
1: me. Well, not reminded me, but made me think of the fact that for Winsync, you know, we play everything memorized, or mostly everything memorized. So when we're going on tour, we play a ninety-minute recital all memorized, and that be, goes beyond. It takes it one step further to really talk, showcase what you're talking about: the eye contact, the body movement, the connection with the audience. We're taking down like that fourth wall, we say. That music mm-hmm. stands pose sometimes, and um, we got that idea from actually doing education shows for kids, for like young elementary school students or kindergartners, because you know they get bored real fast.
0: <laughs> yeah. So,
1: but um, early on, actually, this was before I was even in the group. When Sync discovered, like, if they take away the music stand and they really interact with the kids, like, they just stare at you wide eyed. they they're engaged. And um, they do, and we do our version of Peter and the Wolf, of course, um, where we are in costume and we actually act out and narrate the entire story, like walking around. And sometimes we run through the kids, you know, in some of the chase scenes and stuff like that. (laughs) They love it, but it's that kind of interaction that you can do when you don't have a music stand in front of you, you're not planted in one place. You've got the whole stage that you can use. And that brings people in too. not saying that everybody should just go out and memorize everything, but I'm just saying that like that aspect for wind has been huge, a huge
0: asset. So. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. There's definitely benefit there to, you know, like you said, breaking down that fourth wall. I love it. Breaking down the fourth wall. I love that <laughs> phrase when it comes to that, right? Like the music stand is the fourth wall. Bye-bye. <laughs> exactly. <I love> that. <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. Emily, I want to thank you so much um, for taking your time today to talk to us and talk about some of your experiences. I think we covered a lot of issues, but we also found a lot of positives today for the future of classical music. So I'm glad that you are a part of that and that you are doing so many great things, um, even now during this time of COVID, to push our classical music industry forward and you know <laughs> making it more diverse, and more equitable for everyone. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was fun.